How we doing, folks? Welcome back to yet another episode of In Defense of Liberation, the show that is working towards and educating about a true people's liberation movement and one day soon a true proletarian revolution. But until that day comes, I am your host, Josh, and I'd like to say thanks so much for stopping by. If this is your first time stopping by, I'd like to say, again, thank you. It means a lot. Please feel free to let me know what you think of the show by either rating and reviewing my show on Apple Podcasts or some other podcast format like Spotify. You can also reach out to me at my social media at In Defense of Liberation on TikTok, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook with any questions, comments, or concerns. And if you have a more long-form version of a message that you would like to send to me, irregardless of its point, whether you'd want to hit me up to suggest some shows to watch, tell me that everything I said was wrong and I'm a dumb communist, or hit me up and see if I would be wanting to talk some more sometime. I'm down for whatever. Feel free to hit me up whenever you feel like it. It's indefensiveliberation at gmail.com no caps or spaces. But I want to start out the episode today by just kind of giving us a little news brief and connecting it to the overall episode itself. So as we know, Kyle Rittenhouse was found not guilty according to the courts of the United States government. Uh, What does this mean? Well, you know, I think that it honestly can mean a few different things. What it really means, first and foremost, is just the fact that this kid is one in a billion when it comes to settlers and colonists and extremists and far-right wingers going out and murdering people. Um, He's not an anomaly. He's not some, you know, crazy outlier. This is, you know, par for the course, unfortunately. And the fact that he get off, he got off, you know, as moderately surprising as it might be because of the, you know, substantial evidence. <laughs> um, really, there's, there's a lot of different reasons as to why they wouldn't want convict, to convict him. But I think the easiest to understand is because the very foundation to the United States as a settler colonial state is, you know, entirely supportive of actions like those that Kyle took because actions like that are a part of the very process that was uh, developed and ultimately turned into uh, America. So the laws are hypocritical. They're also written in excuse me, got cut off. The laws are, you know, subjective and they're written in that way so that judges can use their own superficial biases and juries can be influenced by mass propaganda and confusing legal code. Um, This is kind of like, this is all just a part of it. So Kyle Rittenhouse got off really fucked up, not really surprising. So what does it mean? Well, that's what I'm here to talk about today. Uh, The overall goal of this episode is to kind of make the connections between the Rittenhouse and Ahmed Arbery cases with 
the overall violent nature of the U.S. and capitalist state apparatus, as well as to convey the overall nature of capitalism, white supremacy, and imperialism. I also want to make sure that we can still remain hopeful, that we understand that this is nothing new. This should not be sending us into a pit of despair, but should be further radicalizing us. And the last thing that I want to convey is that hope can be found in organizing. We have to figure out what means and what practical examples that have come before us and use them to encourage and organize folks in order to move forward and do something about the continued oppression and exploitation that the capitalist system has created. So first, before I really go into anything, I think we ought to go over some history and some background here. Um, I think that obviously... Again, we mentioned that the fact is that the United States was, you know, funded and started as a settler colonial project by the first, you know, one of the many first to enter the the realm of North America to colonize was the Virginia Company of London. This was a company started by the King of Britain at the time uh, to go survey take resources, land, and labor from the colonies without it being uh, under British ownership, under British colonization. Um, So this way they could, you know, somewhat play a different role. They're still going to get all the money and all the power from it, but it's not, it's not going to have a British flag um, stamped right next to everything that's done. So this also gives, you know, the kings and queens and the ruling class governments the opportunity to somewhat distance themselves from the awful genocidal actions that they knew were taking place all over the world. So who really were, you know, these founders? Because that's that's important, because not only were these founders doing the same thing that Kyle was doing, but they're the ones who wrote the laws which let Kyle off. The founders, more often than not, coming over in the early 14, 15, and 1600s, were wealthy landowners from Europe who, you know, maybe weren't wealthy enough and didn't own enough land to be the dominant person or a part of the dominant group within society in their area. So there's a few different things that motivated them to come over here. Well, first and foremost... They didn't like having to listen to absolute monarchs. So they figured, we'll come over here, we'll take over the land, and we'll start developing our own, you know, sort of government, where there's more representation, and there's more freedom, and there's more participation in politics by the people themselves. But again, that was only, you know, that was an idealistic uh, conception. Because who was coming over were not the majority of people who was coming over at first were the very wealthy and powerful, and then those who came over after were the laborers. Now, they were not as, you know, exploited as enslaved folks or indigenous populations, but they weren't wealthy and powerful like, say, William Berkeley. So they ended up, you know, leading to a lot of different contradictions within the settler society. 
between the, you know, exploited and the exploiters. So, you have a few different groups who really began to found what we know as the United States. You had the very wealthy and powerful, then you had the rich landowners and the, you know, shopkeepers and the artisans, etc. But then you had the masses of mostly unemployed, poor, hungry, starving people um, who would, you know, be the grunt work up until the point that uh, enslaved labor really became the dominant mode of production. Their inspiration for coming over here, again, was freedom in word, but what that freedom actually looked like in material reality was very much not freedom. We know this to be true. So when we're talking about the founding, you know, of this country, we have to realize that things like vigilante assaults and the, you know, uh, taking over and taking property that, uh, you know, had formerly belonged to the indigenous peoples or had formerly been used by the indigenous peoples there, that was commonplace and it wasn't a problem because, you know, the settlers were coming over and they wanted to have their free society. And since they and the Christian churches, both the Catholic and the Protestant churches, and the kingdoms of Great Britain, France, and Spain, since all of them didn't quite see indigenous people and black folks as human beings, none of this was something that went against their moral code. None of this was something that led them to question the hypocrisy of their claims for democracy and for freedom and for liberty for all. Because as far as they were concerned, the only human beings that were actually capable or should be capable of attaining freedom and liberty were white male landowners. So at the end of the day, if the rest of society wasn't seeing the benefits of this supposedly free and democratic society, that didn't really matter because they weren't the ones that were supposed to in the first place. So at the end of the day, nobody was calling out the hypocrisy except for very few. And those people oftentimes were not in a position where they could truly cultivate a following and do anything about it. Although there were plenty of examples for, you know, uh, of indigenous resistance, of enslaved black folks resistance, of um, settlements and of societies that developed in opposition to the ruling class settler colonists, um, and that can't be ignored. But unfortunately, the overall uh, agenda was and remained a settler colonial one. So another very foundational inspiration to this, to the coming over to um, the quote-unquote new world, was the development of what we know as capitalism. Now, it wasn't in full force by the time the first settlers really began to make their way across the ocean, but the development out of feudalism was really beginning. Um, as we you know, already discussed, some of the settlers that were coming were fleeing the absolute monarchist structures and the religious persecution that they were facing under the feudal system. 
that feudal system also had a mode of production which very few people could actually live off of. The majority of people were serfs or some other poor laborers. And even if you were to be so lucky as to own land, you might just be owning that land under a money rent, which is taking you for everything you've got. So the circumstances that you found all throughout Europe and that begin to form in the earliest days uh, of the colonization of the U.S. is almost feudal-like oppression, right? It's coming out of the feudal days. So capitalism, of course, we know has a necessity for certain processes and certain developments. One very foundational part to the capitalist system is the ability to own private property and to accumulate private capital. So in this sense, what some of the settlers were coming over here to do was to begin taking ownership of land, of resources to start building factories, to start building shipping companies, to start building slave labor companies, etc. And this was the way that they made their money was through the ownership of private property. A a you know explicitly capitalist development. So in this sense, you really uh It's imperative to understand that that can't be disconnected from the history of the development of North America because as foundational to the, you know, society that developed here that racism was and that sexism was and that, uh, you know, colonialism was, they ultimately developed necessarily in order to be able to upkeep the status quo. There was many different justifications for this. First and foremost, of course, we know, was a somewhat racialized uh, system of division that really began to take fruition out of the church. Um, in the 13 and 1400s, the different uh, religious groups that were coming out of Europe had an inclination towards white supremacy. And in the 1400s, it was the Catholic Church that made it so in law with the Spanish Inquisition, which sought out pure-blooded Christians. This was one of the many foundations of the racist societies that developed out of colonialism. Colonialism was also a means by which this system not only perpetuated itself, but also justified itself. They would turn and say, listen, if these people weren't meant to be enslaved, If these people weren't meant to be taken advantage of, why are they so, you know, this word, that word, and another word? You know, they call them all kinds of things and really dehumanize them. So colonialism in and of itself becomes a justification for that very system, capitalism, 
and almost has a direct dialectical relationship with capitalism because as capitalism develops, so too does colonialism. And as colonialism develops, so too does capitalism. So the history of the United States, of course, as we know, is a settler colonial society. It is also a society started by wealthy land-owning settlers who built a capitalist and colonial system based upon private property, racism, and private accumulation of capital, as well as the exploitation of the labor force of others. This is a natural component to the capitalist mode of production. Now, this is not because the United States and the people who founded it were so goddamn evil and they were just the worst in the world and so they created this United States and this United States is the worst thing that's ever come. No. The United States is one of, if not the most horrific, brutal, and murderous imperialist empires that the world has ever seen. But it developed in accordance to the level of development of human society. You know, the tools by which the oppressors could exploit, torture, and murder people could only develop at the same rate that the mode of production was developing, that the mode of technology was developing, and that the human society itself was developing at. So in this case, of course, the legal code, the very, you know, written law that was used to found this nation was written by rapists, murderers, colonists, racists, all kinds of awful people. And so, of course, the history of the United States and its very legal system was drafted in such a way that folks like Kyle Rittenhouse, like Derek Chauvin, and like plenty of others whose names we probably don't even know, have time and time again been able to use for their own justified actions. Now, little side note here for the history. Um, in the 1920s and 30s, when the Nazi party and, you know, individual Nazis like Hitler were writing, theorizing, and trying to develop the laws and very structure of their racist regime, they looked to the examples of the genocide of Native peoples in the United States, the segregation and Jim Crow laws, but also the quotas, the oppression, and the exploitation against migrant communities. All of this was used as a foundational point to build the Nazi racist law, let alone, let us not forget, the fact that it built this country's laws. So even though it's crazy that the Nazis borrowed from the U.S. legal code, it's even more crazy that the U.S. legal code is written in the way that it is so as to give the Nazis an inspiration. 
uh, yeah. So again, you know, this isn't necessarily because uh, the founders of the U.S. were evil. They were, but that's not why they did what they did. Because of the development out of feudalism and into capitalism that was occurring in Europe at the time, the capitalist powers and the ruling class elites who were empires, again, they operated through imperialism, that is how they kept their country going, they needed new land, new resources, and new labor forces to exploit. The colonies that happened and were developed here in North America happened for the same reason that the colonies and the exploitation developed in Central and South America and in Australia and in other countries that were colonized. This is the rationale of the capitalist system. This is the logic of the capitalist system which constantly requires growth and places, people, and things to exploit. So now that we kind of have a history down about the U.S. empire and about capitalism within North America especially, we should turn now to lessons to be learned from looking at this history and what is really there to understand. So again, before we move on to this, This system and this history developed as a justification for and a means of perpetuating the status quo as well as continuing to give power and wealth to the hands of the already powerful and wealthy. One thing that after looking back at the history of the United States and of capitalist societies all across the world One thing that we should know, but we simply do not seem to always be able to remember, is that the capitalist state apparatus has absolutely no interest whatsoever in the justice or the benefits of the working class people. If, in any case, the empire or the capitalist societies across the world have provided privileges, gains, benefits, interests, or some form of progressive development for the masses of working people within their countries, it has either been because of A, a continuous and militant class struggle which has forced them to do so, or B, because they have a little extra room to breathe because they are already in other countries exploiting and oppressing them. We cannot ask the state for anything else anymore. The state of not only the U.S., but also of Canada, in Europe, in Australia, the capitalist bourgeois system is incapable of providing for the masses of people what they want. Because, plain and simple, the interests of the ruling class and the interests of the working class are directly oppositional, right? So I think here it really gives us an opportunity to ask ourselves, how have we failed before? What has failed us 
time and time again. Well, speaking historically, we have to again see that every single time we try to capitulate to the state power, we try to ask for assistance from the capitalists, we try to build a system of justice and of liberation based on the systems and structures that already exist and have been used to build the capitalist system cannot provide for us what we need. We need to stop using them. I finally took notes. I don't normally take notes, so I'm looking over them real quick. Um, We have to face this head on, right? I've discussed it in this way before on some of my shows. uh, But, you know, really what you're looking at is capitalism is a fire, right? The earth is on fire. Great example, right? That doesn't make anybody feel incredibly, you know, full of despair. But anyways, the earth is on fire. But there was a spark. There was an incendiary that caused the fire. Now, I'm not saying capitalism was the first time that, you know, any shit was going bad. But what I am saying is before capitalism, the earth wasn't on fire for a while. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Does climate change happen naturally over the course of four to five million years? Was there an ice age, a period in time when the earth was on fire, a period in time when it was completely underwater? Yes, yes, and yes. That was over millions of years ago. And to develop to that point and develop out of that, it took countless of millions of years. We got there in less than 500. That's a huge problem. So yeah, capitalism set the world on fire in a lot of cases. So when we go to put out the fire, just like any other fire, you know, you don't just toss a little bit of water on it. You don't just, you know, spray some foam in the general area and fan some wind and blow at it. No, you dump water and you you fire the fire extinguisher directly at the very base of the fire. And so in that sense, we have to face the problems which we are facing in this world directly in the way that they require. We have to get to the root causes of these issues and eradicate them from their roots. We cannot be simply focusing on, you know, superficial or uh, uh, non-substantial or superstructural issues alone. We also can't be getting so beaten down and isolated in these different forms of struggle, which are not providing the masses of people with any form of justice, liberation, or power. Again, to be able to actually do such a thing, we can't just go about any random action or type of organization or struggle that we think sounds good, right? Let's not be stupid. Let's not take an eclectic look at this and think that you're going to come up with some random strategy that the billions and trillions of people that were born on this earth that experienced life, that struggled, that participated in liberation, etc., have not come up with themselves. That is far less likely than the fact that the people who came before us were just simply not capable, for plenty of reasons, of seeing through to the end their objectives. Our goal is to do just that. So we have to look at history. 
we have to look at the many different forms of struggle for freedom, independence, national liberation, you know, self-determination, and socialism. We have to look at the revolutionary history of human beings. Because human beings, since their very first, uh, you know, civilizations, have been trying to wage struggles for different forms of freedom and emancipation. The earliest of societies were agricultural societies, but soon they became slave societies, where slaves were used en masse to develop the agriculture of a given society. And so because of this, you had all kinds of slave revolts, you had rebellions, you had calls to, you know, take over the entire uh, society, you had uh, demands by slaves through strikes and through you know, different forms of unity where they called for uh, different social, political, or, you know, uh, I I won't really necessarily say economic, but you, you get my point because there were many issues that slaves in, you know, Rome and in Greece were facing other than just simply being enslaved. Like, being enslaved leads to a plethora of other issues. Um... And so, you know, they went about different forms in different ways and struggled for different things in order to seek out really what they, you know, might have even called themselves liberation. But at the end of the day, the ways in which society was built, the numbers of slaves that actually, you know, constituted uh, a, a percentage of the population and also the level of development of the technology, of the agriculture and economy, of the politics, politics, and of society as a whole was not really that advanced. So when they really got their so-called freedom, that freedom didn't look too free to even them at the time, let alone us who realized that out of feudalism and out of capitalism, we are still seeking some sort of freedom. Sorry, I took a break to uh, smoke a little bit. I pulled up right at the end of that last segment. But um, so what we're really facing today, obviously, even though there has been countless revolutions and plenty of different forms of resistance all across the world, we know that millions upon millions of people whether it is within the United States or elsewhere, are still facing class society, they are still facing oppression, they are still facing exploitation, and they are still left unfree. So, when we're looking back at the lessons that we're trying to learn, right, and we look at history and we, you know, try to come to an understanding of what worked and what didn't, I think there's a few different types of struggle that we want to study in order to really get a a clear understanding for uh, why certain things worked and why other things didn't. So when it comes to slave societies, you have the end of slave societies, but you still have absolute monarchy. So you still have that power structure there. So even though one contradiction is resolved, there is another much more principled contradiction within society, which develops almost naturally out of the 
pre-existing slave society into a feudalist one. So that's, you know, one type of struggle. Another type of struggle we see coming out of the feudal societies, which are bourgeois revolutions, capitalist revolutions. So you have a development of a new system out of feudalism known as capitalism. Capitalism, the mode of production by which, you know, the ruling class takes ownership of the labor force, the resources, the markets, and the land of not only its own, uh, you know, nation state, but also through imperialism and colonialization, the rest of the world. The capitalist bourgeois revolutions and the developments since then have led to other contradictions and other inequalities. Now we have the inequality between the rich and the poor, rather than between the kings and the peasants, or between the slave owners and the slaves. We have the contradiction between the powerful and the supposedly powerless. We have the contradiction between the formerly colonized nations and peoples and the former colonizers. Out of these struggles, you have a few different versions um, of new forms of resistance and new forms of um, rebellions and revolutions. So, you know, there are... <coughs> A few that I will name really quick, and then we'll we'll dive into a little bit of discussion about the difference between a few. So you have a lot of independence struggles um, within uh, formerly colonized countries, uh, especially in Central and South America throughout the 1800s and the 1900s going into the 1900s you have similar struggles in Asia and in Africa but as we know a lot of these independent struggles one of the most easy to cite and understand would be the Cuban independent struggle I mean Jose Marti and the Cubans fought for their independence from Spain but then in the last moment that independence was completely stolen out from under them by a new overlord which was not a, a so let's 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 pump the brakes here real quick and we'll really really uh settle in on this point supposedly the systems which the spanish colonizers and the american imperialists are different from one another. However, if we look at history more as a dialectical process than a series of quantitative and unconnected events, then we see that imperialism and colonialism, yes, are different in definition and in form in some way, but their essence stays the same. So you see a very similar, although apparently and allegedly different form of oppression of the Cuban people in Cuba after their independence through puppet regimes, through petty bourgeois national um, uh, oppressors, 
through capitalist invasion, through imperialism, and other many different forms of exploitation. However, through the 1900s, you also see struggles for self-determination, for national liberation, and even for socialism. So if you look at, say, the difference between an independence struggle and a self-determination struggle, there's a few things you want to hit on. First and foremost, in an independent struggle, you are mainly trying to remove the colonizing body from places and powers of explicit control. In a lot of cases, you're also trying to remove settlers and occupants who are stealing land, who are controlling neighborhoods, who are... Uh, political leaders, generals, etc., police chiefs. And from this point forward, you have the outside force, once, once the independent struggle is waged and had, you have the outside force or country seemingly leave in physical form. However, it takes advantage of the country in a new way, through imperialism. Imperialism is different from colonialism because it is not necessarily a distinct occupation, but it is more a financial control of the very systems and structures of an outside nation. So you have the U.S. now funding and controlling the media, funding and controlling the resources, funding and controlling the markets, funding and controlling the labor force, and especially funding and controlling the state within the supposedly independent Cuba. So you see the influence through financial capital over an external country. So you had, for example, the U.S. coming in, funding a majority of the casinos, a majority of the sugar plantations, a majority of the brothels, a majority of the state officials, the police, the military. That is how the U.S. began to control Cuba. And although there were definitely forces of U.S. Marines and, you know, U.S. diplomats and politicians physically in Cuba, they were not an occupying force as the Spanish were um, in the sense that the military checkpoints, the, you know, control of uh, travel, all that stuff, it took a new form, right? Not saying that it was free. It was different. But then, you know, in in the late 1940s, early 1950s, you see a shift in the type of struggles which the Cubans are participating in. Because now, the Cubans have had 40 to 50 years of U.S. domination. They had 150 plus 
years of Spanish um, oppression and uh, control. And now they had an understanding of U.S. exploitation. So they knew that just simply to vie for independence in word was not enough. They had to completely write the script, rewrite the script. They couldn't allow for any of the previous system to continue. They couldn't allow the U.S. or any external force to own and operate the state or any other part of the markets, resources, or labor force. They kicked out all, you know, eventually, they kicked out all the U.S. corporations. You also have, when they actually have their very revolution in Cuba, and Fidel Castro, Raul Castro, Che, and the rest of them uh, are saying, you know, we don't want Yankee imperialism, we don't want the domination of the large corporations, etc. In an instant, all of the wealthy and powerful within the society, they fucked off. Capital flight. Because when you have a true national liberation struggle, you are saying to the rest of the world, I do not care. We will be in control of our markets. We will be in control of our resources. We will be in control of our labor force. We will be in control of our industry. We will be in control of our trade. And most importantly, we will be in control of our state, of our government. That is a self-determination or national liberation struggle. However, as a communist myself, I would be uh, you know, remiss to not point out as to the differences between a explicitly socialist and a non-explicitly socialist self-determination struggle. Now, I wanted to go to school to be a history major. I don't know if I can do that anymore. I smoked too much weed and I skimmed through too many articles and books to, you know, really be a history major. But one thing, one thing that I am pretty, you know, aptly aware of is how speaking of revolutions, how they have taken different forms and led to different results all throughout history. You have revolutions as far back as, you know, the French and the American supposed revolution. And then you have revolutions like in Cuba, like in Bolivia. And then you have revolutions also in, you know, uh, uh, China. And you have revolutions in uh, Russia. And you have revolutions in Burkina Faso. And you have revolutions in Mexico. And all of these look incredibly different. One thing is abundantly clear. The necessity to struggle for freedom is there. It has always been there. People will always eventually rise up and resist. 
oppressed people do not stay oppressed for very long. And that is the truth. If you do not understand that all of this history we have been discussing has been the history of class struggle, has been the history of a class society wherein one part of society is oppressed and one part of society is oppressing them, then you don't really care to understand that point because it's clear it's clear and all through you know all throughout history it's very abundantly clear but struggle and change are processes they often come in different forms they take different stages and oftentimes they are usually relative to the historical human development within the given society as well as as marx and engels have shown and as plenty of others have since then that this also this form of human development is most properly understood through the understanding of that society's mode of production and accumulation Every single new stage of development, again, we talked about slave societies, we talked about feudal societies, and we talked about capitalist societies. There's, you know, plenty of other very uh, evident uh, changes and developments, such as technology advancements, military strategy, um, understanding of the world and the environment etc that have led to different forms and different means of struggle this usually again is quite relative to the mode of production that has developed within that society if you look all the way back to some of the earliest self-determination and national liberation struggles in asia in africa in the Americas, you see time and time again very similar processes. And the reason why I'm stressing this before really clarifying what the difference between a socialist and a non-socialist struggle is, is because I think almost every single time that a lot of these revolutions and, you know, national liberation struggles or self-determination struggles were allowed to progress and, you know, fail, win, take losses, take wins, take you know, account of the situation, have another generation come and do the same processes over and over and over again, you see that if they are able to reach a certain stage of development, they almost all make their way towards socialism. When Fidel first had their revolution... I don't know if this was necessarily him lying or, you know, not for nothing, even if it was, this might have honestly been a, a genuine understanding of where the Cuban masses were, that they might not have been 100% ready for socialism, but they were 100% ready to decide for themselves. That is ultimately what brought them to socialism because they took in the examples and the historical knowledge of what had had been before, what had been 
acted upon before throughout history, they saw what their nation itself had experienced time and time again, and they learned and came to the conclusion together that socialism was in fact the way forward. So the difference, I would say, between a socialist and a non-socialist national liberation or self-determination struggle is the fact that they have not been able to actually choose for themselves, nor have they been able to develop far enough to capitalize on that acknowledgement that the socialist struggle is the way to lead the revolution forward. I think countries like in Iran, right? And, you know, countries like um, Rojava, right? Countries like Mexico, who have different forms of change than the socialist one. But in a lot of the, you know, boxes that we're looking at, you know, own the mean of pro- means of production, truly democratic and representative politics, popular education, free health care, food programs, you know, a non-militarized state apparatus, These are all, you know, if you wanted to get a big chart and write down everything that makes a country socialist, these are check marks further towards the socialist box than towards the capitalist one, right? If that makes sense. If you're walking down a path, or even honestly, let's do it like this. You got two sides of a line. The left is capitalist, the right is socialist. The middle is the middle, which this is a complete misunderstanding of the spectrum. But anyways, this is enough to get the visual right. You got countries that are leaning more towards socialism than they are leaning towards capitalism. The issue being that these countries truly need to be given the sanctity and the integrity, as well as the freedom to pursue their ends as they wish. Because I would guarantee that if these countries all over the world that have you know, popular governments, that have mass demonstrations and movements, that have community control, that have nationalized, uh, you know, resources, I would say if they were given the ability to develop as they would wish, at least nine times out of 10, they'd turn out to be socialist. Because what they're doing is building towards socialism. I mean, collectivizing the resources within your nation and doling out the wealth in redistributive means so that people can have food, so that they can have housing, so that they can have health care, and so that they can have jobs. That's not capitalism. That is for sure not capitalism. But, you know, what's important is that we understand that what we want to do here and what we have to learn from history is that socialism 
building towards a international communist revolutionary struggle is the only way forward that does not put 7.8 billion people into the ground. Not only because of climate change, but because if you look at, um, you know, all of the wars, really, that have ever taken place since early colonization have taken place because of land, because of resources, because of labor forces, and because of markets. So therefore, capitalism, time and time again, has naturally led to war. Also, if you look at this pandemic as an example, the need for the capitalist system to globalize and to dominate the trade, the production, and the consumption of the entire world, these pandemics and epidemics will continue to happen because we have food being produced in the global south, which is shipped to Eastern European countries to be packaged and then distributed back out to the rest of the world. If in one country there is an epidemic of cholera or of Ebola or of COVID SARS, if you are... Uh, Working in that country, you're producing food or clothing or technology, you're building that, you're sending it to another country, that virus and that bacteria gets those people sick. And then those people package the things, they put the insignia on it, or, you know, they distribute it out to even their own markets. Then it ends up in the United States. It ends up in Canada. It ends up in Russia. It ends up in Central America. It ends up in Mexico. This is how we know that this system is just plainly deadly to the human population for so many reasons. Not only this, but of course, as we know, imperialism, imperialism has developed. And this is one of the most crucial points to show that this society has begun to reach a stage of, you know, uh, crises. But the capitalist system, Engels wrote about it all the way back in the 1840s. Every five to seven years has a crisis, a panic, a depression, a recession, uh, uh, you know, uh, whatever. Uh, supply chain shortage, right? And this develops naturally. It's a pattern. It is a part of capitalist development. It is not because someone's doing capitalism wrong, but because we're doing capitalism at all. Imperialism is one such development, and it is one such crisis. Now, granted, it's not a crisis for the imperialists because it's making them all of the money, and it's building the empire that the U.S. has become. It built the empire that Europe was. That is a true crisis to the capitalist system because now it has globalized and proletarianized the working classes of the world. And by doing so, it has stretched and expanded and intensified the struggling of not just a few hundred in a local community, not a few million within a single country or nation state, but billions. And it has created some of the most intense wealth 
an immense uh, capital and advancement and technology while also creating in that same context relative to the amount of wealth that it's created the poorest and most uh, desperate people that the world has seen in generations. Now, it's not like this shit went anywhere, but it's just the fact that it is not just in small pockets of the world that the imperialists can pretend that that they don't exist. So... You know, we've gone on for a while talking about history and talking about the different ways in which that we have to learn from things. But all of these ideas are just that, ideas. People acted upon them and results came of them. So what do we do today? How do we apply these lessons, like practically? Let us remember, okay... And I will stress this point before going into answering that question. There are blatant contradictions within the capitalist societies. You have the rich versus the poor. You have the colonized and the colonizers. You have the imperial empires, the imperial core and the imperialized nation and its people. You have the powerful and the supposedly powerless. But power can be taken. Power can be built. Power can be organized. Fred Hampton, when he was talking in his uh, court trial, uh, it's on YouTube, um, he gets a deck of cards and he's showing on the desk to the jury he's saying you know here's the reason you might be asking yourself well if this is the case and if it's been this way for so long that so many people are so oppressed and so few people are doing the oppressing of them why don't they do something about it and he said the reason why that doesn't happen is because over here you got the lower and over here you got the upper because you have this upper This upper is able to stand on top of and dominate the lower through the media, through the education, through controlling their labor, through health care, through a lack of housing and food, through just completely divide and conquer methods of racism, sexism, homophobia, transphobia, religious persecution, etc., And in doing so, it makes it impossible for those at the bottom to really be able to get up to the top to even take on those motherfuckers. I mean, to jump back to the Kyle Rittenhouse case, I can't fucking afford an AR-15, but let alone, I mean, let me show up with an AR-15 against some of the shit that the U.S. State Department has. Like... This is one reason among many why time and time again we've been incapable of doing anything about this. But we can because what it takes is learning from these lessons and organizing and coming together to build the biggest amount of forces combined 
on the one very clear truth about each and every one of them, which is the capitalist system does not benefit them. For this or that reason, we can get to that and we can learn about it and we can grow on it and we can organize around it as a party or as a coalition or as a, you know, mass organization. But just sitting here and saying that, well, you know, we can't just be anti-capitalist. We also have to be, you know, anti-imperialist. And we can't just be anti-imperialist. We have to be anti-racist. And we can't just be anti-racist. We have to be anti-transphobic. We have to do everything in our power to eliminate every form of oppression and exploitation that exists. But when I sit here and say that we want to wage a class struggle, people do not hear that as what it means. They hear it as aligning simply against capitalism and not understanding that capitalism has been the very aligning and central point which connects each and every one of these forms of oppression. I just gave you many reasons to show as to why this is true. If you look at each one of the different forms of oppression that took place all over the world that I was talking about, look at who's doing the oppressing and look at who's feeling the oppression. That class struggle is apparent there time and time and time and time again all throughout history. How, how and why do these contradictions come about? They naturally develop. I mean, in a capitalist system, if you're going to have people who own the business, you got to have people who work in it. And if you're going to have people who work in it, right, you're going to have to have people who are going to buy from it. And if you're going to have people who buy from it, well, they have to make money too. And if they have to make money, then they got to have someone who owns something else that they work for. Or they got to do some owning and they got to go about, you know, oppressing and exploiting people themselves. So... It's natural. It has to be there because that's the whole way the system works. To have a consumer, you have to have a producer. And to have a producer, you have to have an owner. They develop out of material reality, really. That's that's the easiest way to understand it. History also, it, it's it's constantly moving forward. Contradictions cannot disappear. They cannot go unignored. The contradictions between white folks and non-white folks across the world has not gone away. The contradiction between the poor and the not poor has not gone away. The contradiction between the colonizers and the imperialists and the colonized and the imperialized has not and will not go away. When we're talking about the development of contradictions, though, remember, change comes in stages, and it's a process. If we see the nucleus of change in the capitalist system that was necessary, in some of the very first revolts and rebellions against the capitalist system all the way back in the 14 and 1500s, then we must know that that change started then and has been developing forward ever since. But because history also goes from quantitative to qualitative changes and jumps, we know that this system has reached its end. And the only thing that is going to keep it alive is if we keep supporting it. If the millions upon billions of people who actually build the society, who work 
who actually labor and provide for the society and for the system to perpetuate itself forward stopped doing what was necessary to keep that system going forward and instead took all of their ideas, took all of their knowledge, took all of their understanding of the world, of the economy, of the state, of society, of human beings, of the environment. If they took all of the technologies, all of the government systems, all of the organizing structures and put those to use for a different and revolutionary purpose, then we would actually be able to see qualitative change in the world. First things first. Kwame Nkrumah said, and I will never stop quoting it, action presupposes organization. One of the questions we must ask ourselves is who are we? Are we anarchists? Are we capitalists? Are we social democrats? Are we libertarians? Are we liberals? Are we conservatives? Are we socialists? Are we communists? Are we Marxists? Are we Marxist-Leninists? These things matter because we have to understand who we're willing to be friends with, who we're willing to do uh, alliances with, and who we're going to be friends and aligned against. These things must be known. Kwame Ture says, unity in action is very important. But we must also have unity in thought. It is not so much to be organized against something, but we have to be organized for something. Because as soon as you burn something down, you have to build something up in its place or it will be empty. It will leave a vacuum. And if a vacuum is left all throughout Europe, all throughout Asia, all throughout Africa and Australia and the Americas, we see time and time again that rebellions, revolts, and revolutions which are not able to consolidate power to come together and build something in place of that empty vacuum, that vacuum sucks up whatever powerful force that it can and puts that force in power. So what does it mean to organize? First of all, go read what are the friends of the people and why do they, what do they have to say about social democracy, I think. It's by Lenin. Go listen to, or go read it. Because that is really what we need to be, that's the kind of mindset that we have to be at right now. We have to be looking around at all the ideas. We have to be looking at around at all the different structures, at, at all the different groups, at all the different organizations. We have to say, who can we get with to get where we're trying to go? And who wants to get to the same place that we do? Once we understand that, we got to turn around and go, okay, And who's going to stop us? This is one of the most important things we need to be doing because this is how we base our organization. That's who we organize with, and it's also who we organize against. But what does organizing mean? 
Well, there are far too many examples to count all throughout history. Some of the best examples of how to organize ourselves exist today because thankfully, again, quantitative to qualitative change has been made throughout history. So far more advanced strategies and tactics have been developed across the world for running a government, for planning an economy, for developing agriculture, for organizing a society, for combating racism, for developing a state that is able to eventually fight the class antagonisms, but also defend itself against outside agitators. Examples exist in many, many countries. I've named a few already. Nicaragua. In Venezuela and in Cuba, as well as in Bolivia. These are all examples of ways that we can begin to organize ourselves. Other examples exist in China, in uh, also in uh, smaller pockets, usually, in developing countries where more communalistic and collectivized methods are capitalized on for the survival of the group. For example, in South Africa with the shack dwellers movement, in Brazil with the landless mo uh, workers movement, in, uh, um, in the Philippines, in the red areas, in the red zones. And Although, again, like we were talking about before, there's the big checklist, and they might not have all the boxes checked off to call themselves socialists. What we want to ask ourselves, again, is are they building towards socialism, or are they really, truly building towards capitalism? You also have so many examples in history. The Soviet Union stood tall against fascism. It stood tall against American and European imperialism. China has done the same. Vietnam, I forgot to mention earlier when we were talking about countries that exist now, Vietnam, the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, right? These places also serve as an example of how to defend yourself and organize in order to set the stage for further development, for further organization, for further revolution. If you don't agree that these countries are worth looking at, if you think because they're not what you classify as socialist that we need to turn our backs on them, that we need to join in with the CIA, with the OAS, with the National Endowment for Democracy, with the Heritage Foundation, with the United Nations, and condemn these countries and attack them on social media and dogpile on them, then not for nothing, I don't really want to spend much time talking to you right now because although you might have some very you know well-founded critiques of these countries, I'd love to see what you're going to do with that information. Because until we're doing anything about our bourgeoisie here in America, as Mao would say, no study, no room to talk. Even though in this case, by study, you know we're not just taking study to mean I read a goddamn book. Studying is going ahead and putting that shit into action, praxis, because that's where true study comes from. Because although reading a book or consuming content is really important, what actually teaches us lessons is the scientific method of experiment, 
of result conclusions, and of further hypotheses. One aligning guide that seems to pop up in almost every single case, whether it's in the DPRK, whether it's in uh, China, whether it's in Cuba, whether it's in the former Soviet Union, is a uh, some form of a nucleus party or mass organization apparatus. Um, it brings more people together in a centralized form, um, which, you know, there are many folks who they don't believe in that. And if you're someone who thinks that a more spontaneous and uh, autonomous struggle is the way to go, well, then, you know, I'd love to maybe talk with you sometime because I disagree. Um, but these groups aren't always, you know, necessarily explicitly communist. Uh, but many in, you know, exploited countries especially, oftentimes do end up trying to make some attempt at socialism even if it's sometimes, quote-unquote, by accident through, you know, things like nationalizing uh, resources. Like, for example, Saddam Hussein was the CIA's boy all throughout the 70s. But then in the 80s and the 90s, I think just the 80s, actually, he starts talking about nationalizing the oil. Not because he's all of a sudden some socialist. He, dude was always a right-wing fanatic. But he wasn't going to let the U.S. and OPEC and other imperialist countries dictate the resources of the Iranian people. He was still a nationalist. So, you know, it oftentimes is a... I'm going to use the term party, but let's talk about that real quick because a political party, as Kwame Ture speaks about in Black Power, the politics of... Uh, liberation, the, the politics of black liberation in America. Um, a party is a form, a nucleus, or a force which constitutes power, political power, meaning that it means to take political power from the pre-existing uh, ruling class. So, you know, usually these parties align people on certain core principles. Again, not saying that they're communists, but this is a pattern that shows itself time and time again, and I think that it's important because it broadens the struggle. Because by bringing everyone together, you're not just having this person over here in, you know, the West Coast, and this person here in Canada, and this person down here in Brazil, and this group over here in Nepal, and this group over here in Yemen, and this group over here in the Philippines, all trying to, you know, do something, or you don't have, for, you know, your local area, you don't have atomized and divided groups trying to struggle for the same thing. You have these groups who are all in different regions struggling for different ends, all a part of the same party, and therefore coming together as a centralized organ of power to build together, to collectivize information, to learn how to continue forward, to learn from their own mistakes, right? This isn't something that's able to be done on an individual level. You need that collective basis. You need the party. It tries, although it oftentimes can fail, 
to not leave a single person behind. Anybody, you know, if they're willing to dedicate and and volunteer to do what needs to be done in order to build the society they're looking for, anybody can join one of these parties. The reason why it's important to build the central nucleus of a party, uh, especially in cases where, you know, for example, uh, abolitionist groups already exist, uh, sex trade liberation groups already exist, black liberation groups already exist, indigenous liberation groups and indigenous sovereignty organizations already exist and anti-imperialist organizations already get exist, and communist parties already exist, then the point of organization is not necessarily to just reinvent the wheel, but to figure out what, a way to bring all of these units together and essentially join them and have them struggle with each other and start struggles, you know, in new realms and fields of society that they wouldn't have been able to do before because they were isolated and stretched thin. But now because you have support, because you have backup, because you have, you know, an organization, you can do far much more. You can reach that many more people and then you can bring that many more people into the party to actually build the revolution because what I would say truly is the echo of a revolution's validity is first and foremost who is actively participating in it and second who it benefits if a revolution is led by explicitly white cisgender males then it's probably only going to be able to benefit white cisgender males so when we're talking about a revolution when we're talking about a class struggle we have to understand that we have to understand that every single type of person Every single exploited and oppressed person that we can get a hold of needs to be a part of this party and needs to be organizing, needs to be coming together, needs to be learning together, and needs to be getting ready for what is to come. But there's not going to be any kind of perfect revolution here. So again, these party apparatuses have their issues. They miss people. They make wrong decisions. They don't critique or correct their mistake for 10, 15 years down the road. I mean, when Marx wrote the um, Gotha program, condemning the coalition effort between the, the communists and the uh, liberals within German society, it was held for almost 20 years before it was given to the party. And so because of that, mistakes were made and nothing was able to be done about it until much later. What organizing really means is just like what it would mean if you're wanting to organize your office or organize your bedroom or organize your, you know, phone apps. It means taking what is already there and capitalizing on it collecting it and connecting it, making it revolutionary, changing its very quality and nature into something more optimizable for the masses. We have to connect to the masses as well. 
By building an organization, we have to do so to not only see and then meet the needs of the masses, but to have the masses themselves participate in and build the party along with us. We have to educate ourselves. We have to agitate people. We have to propagandize to them. We have to point out the contradictions. We have to join in the demonstrations. We have to organize the unions. We have to build the community garden. We have to have the study group. We have to build the underground socialist organizations. We have to build the community self-defense groups. We have to start the mass movement and we have to build the mass organization. If you're still listening to this, I'd like to say thank you so much. This is really what we need to be doing. I'm going to continue hitting on these points time and time again because until this shit really takes off, it's not something that we can stop talking about. It's not something that we can stop thinking about. Now, there's many different amazing groups which are building and organizing today. And I'm not trying to say that Josh knows better than those groups, that what I'm thinking about doing, which I'm not even able to practically do at this moment, that's why we're talking to each other. That's why I'm doing this, because if I can agitate and propagandize, eventually I'm going to be able to come up, become a part of the Communist Party that you and I are going to build. But until that point, right, there's amazing people, amazing groups, amazing organizations doing incredibly revolutionary work. But until they're all working together, until they're building a class struggle organized, there are many things that can be done incorrectly. There are many mistakes which can be made and they cannot be corrected by the organized, you know, collective. And so if those, you know, individual groups or people don't want to go about, you know, the self-critique and correcting their issues, there's nothing we can do about it. We need the party for so many reasons, but especially because at the end of the day, we have amazing opportunities available to us to build a revolutionary movement today. And you and I, who are constantly probably being told we're never going to see the revolution, we're never going to see the revolution, are definitely going to see the revolution. Because I'm sick of struggling. I'm sick of going to meetings. I'm sick of doing this bullshit. I want to see the revolution, and I want to see a new world. And I think that you feel the same. So if we want to do that, the contradictions are there, the inequality is there, the suffering is there, the need for organizing is there, and the knowledge to do so, the history to learn from is also there. So let's build a party, let's start organizing, let's start struggling for socialism, and let's eradicate this imperialist and capitalist system from the face of the earth, and let us wipe the floor with the U.S. empire. Thank you so much for listening, folks. We will see you next time. Stay safe and stay revolutionary. Peace out. Bye.